everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you doing today? Good. I just actually snuck a picture of us in our uh, formation here. Can we call this formation? <laughs> I think How we, we should. I think we have to. So for our <laughs> listeners who can't see the setup until Jordan posts this picture, which I'm sure she will before the episode drops, I'm recording sort of underneath a bed. It is a loft bed, to be fair. So I'm I'm underneath a bed with some blankets to cushion the sound and I'm hunched over. And Jordan, you've got quite the setup on your end as well. I do. I'm in a closet in my sister's old room at my parents' house. And it's a real hodgepodge of things in here from Christmas <laughs> Christmas pillows to like literally right here is my old my old jersey from Wow, look at that. The Western New York Flash. Like it's just the weirdest things. <laughs> it's a nice little trip down memory lane for you. I know. Maybe I should wear this next time just to feel like I'm really in the in the character. So you can wear your professional jersey and I'll go back and find one of my jerseys from high school and I think we'll be about the same pretty much the same thing, right? I, I think so. It sounds equal. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to think that, but we both know that's not true. Um, Yeah, so Jordan and I are both back home. We are both home. We are with our family. It's an interesting time to be sure. There's not a lot of soccer on television, but that is not stopping us from going back through and interacting with our listeners, answering questions about soccer and looking at the game, even in a little bit of a different way in this weird downtime. So last week's show, Jordan and I put out a request for listener questions. You guys came through. You delivered some great questions that I think we're both pretty excited to answer. I... Couldn't be more thankful for your guys' ability, um, I guess willingness, it's not really ability, willingness to like, one, listen to us, and two, interact and give us some of your thoughts and what you want to know more about. So um, thank you guys so much. This should be an interesting podcast. We do have quite the mix of questions. We put out a call, I think on Twitter, I used the phrase mullets and tactics and, you know, general terms like that. And we did get some mullet questions in addition to the standard tactical and major league soccer questions as well. So I think Jordan, we should get right in with our first two questions, which are both mullet related. Yeah, let's do it. You, you go, Joe. All right. So our first question is from I'm Perry. And our second one is from Justin. Can you talk about Juan Toya and his mullet? And the second one from Justin is where did Era Long's mullet rank among historic MLS mullets? I feel like it went under the radar, but it's worth some acknowledgement. That's from Justin. So, Jordan, what are your thoughts on these hairdos? Okay, first off, I'm going to hit up this Juan Toya because I'm going to be real with you guys and say I had to Google it. I had to get a proper introduction to Juan Toya and his mullet. And I found a video that I will give all of our followers and listeners because it is so worth it. It actually makes my eyes like water (laughs) just thinking about it because I was laughing in the way of like, I actually get it now. I get why people had mullets because his hair in the back of his mullet, the party side, you know, was just flowing with such beauty behind him. And when he was dribbling, Juan Toya was awesome on the dribble. Now this is from the 2007, like his all-star year with FC Dallas. And this cut of highlights is just like his hair flowing behind him side to side. It it gave a, a real nice look. You know, like when a dog sticks their head out the window of a car and their ears are flowing back and their tongues out the window, I kind of imagine that's what it has to feel like to play soccer with long flowing hair. Mm. I've never personally wanted long hair. I've had it pretty short. I had a buzz cut when I was a little kid. And then as I grew up, the hair got a little bit longer to a more normal, average sort of length. I've never really wanted long hair until I watched that video that you put in our show notes. It is a great flow. And honestly, I'm a little jealous, Jordan. I'm a little bit jealous. 
It is so it's worth it. It's it's a quick highlight video, but you'll you'll see what I mean. It's majestic. It really Both is. Both the soccer and the hairdo is majestic. Aaron yes. Long, on the other hand, it's a little bit of a different look. It's more mm. of a, a mohawk mullet combo. Jordan, mm. quick thoughts on Aaron Long. You know, I'm gonna put it out there and I, I might I might be the only one feeling this, but like I've never been a fan of the faux hawk look. And um the faux hawk with like the all the way back down the back where it's like uh, it gives you a little bit of a mullet. And I feel like Aaron Long's was that, you know, it was a faux hawk with a mullet at the bottom. Um, you know, it depends on how you rank mullets like <laughs> in their beauty or in their like strangeness, because they are beautifully strange. Right. And if that's the case, I think that Aaron Long's mullet's pretty high up there because it did have a uniqueness about it. Um, one of the things I found another video about this, one of his teammates actually takes him to get his mullet cut off, which is hilarious. <laughs> and as Aaron Long's getting his uh, scalp massaged by the hairdresser, uh, he's saying, I'm not going to look as fast as without the hair flying behind my head. And I thought maybe that's maybe that's exactly why people have mullets in the first place. (laughs) For Aaron Long to cover extra ground with the Red Bulls or with the national team, I'm all for his getting a little more aerodynamic. So shave that thing off, Aaron Long. Rock with the buzz cut. Rock with some shorter hair. We need you covering (laughs) ground both for Chris Armas and the Red Bulls and for Berhalter's national team. Yeah, I liked it, though. I liked the the mullet questions. We don't have any more mullet-related questions on today's show. Maybe you're happy about that. Maybe you're not so happy about that. But we do have a lot of other tactical questions to get to. Jordan, why don't you hit us up with the next question? All right. I liked this question, Hoffman FC. I've seen you uh, interact with us quite a bit on Twitter. So thank you so much. Really appreciate that. thank you. Do you foresee fullbacks becoming more of an attacking threat than midfielders in the future if they aren't already? With their width and athleticism, like Luis Martins, is this a tactic that's going to stick around? So we can maybe assume he's a Kansas City fan. I think that's fair to say. Hoffman FC, <laughs> we appreciate you uh, repping our show and repping Sporting, Sporting Kansas City as well. Jordan, I think the timing of this question is pretty perfect. I mm-hmm. say that because last week we talked about, in a review looking back to the very first season of MLS games, we kind of talked about fullbacks and how... They weren't as attacking as we see them now. They were pretty reserved. We saw Greg Vanning with the Galaxy staying home as a left back. We saw the right backs for DC United staying back a little bit. The Galaxy as well in the San Jose Clash. These guys weren't bombing up and down the sidelines like we see with Luis Martins now with Sporting Kansas City as that left back. So I think Hoffman FC is perfect with his premise to this question. We're definitely seeing them stay higher up the field, get higher up the field. But my question is, are they going to be more of an attacking threat than midfielders? Jordan, Mm. what do you think about that? Because that's kind of the opening bit of this question. I think that's interesting because we see them utilized more like midfielders in a lot of ways. Think of a 3-5-2, right? And wingbacks, right? They're typically defensive-minded outside players who have the ability to get forward and also help secure the back line. I think that's a really good example of how maybe outside backs are going to transition into more an attacking place, uh, at least initial setup in the field going forward. So a lot more teams may be playing a 3-5-2 as of recently. Um, and then I also, right away, I think about, I talk about Blackman a lot. <laughs> I knew LAFC. it, I knew it, Jordan. <laughs> um, he already does play a little bit of a central midfielder role, and he has the ability to uh, come inside and fill in a gap there. That's just a little bit different way of thinking. But to me, the difference here is 
outside backs for me will never be the same importance as midfielders because just as a player, I've played both of those positions and I've played both those positions in college and at the pro level. So um, rather high levels. And as a central midfielder, you are dictating so much of the play, so much of the play. You have the ability to get on the ball more. You have the ability to um, help in defensive structure a little bit more. So I just, I don't think they will ever be more important than midfielders, but I think that in attack, outside backs and maybe central midfielders have more ability to be interchangeable if that is a fair thing to say. No, I think it is, right? Because there is that mentality difference between those positions, right? When you're a central midfielder, you know what your responsibilities are. You know what your job is conducting the midfield, conducting play, being that metronome sometimes or, or getting forward. You have your very specific set of, of rules and instructions. Fullbacks, with fullbacks, we're starting to see that change, right? We are starting to see players come inside. You mentioned Tristan Blackman. I think of also Sam Bynes for the Colorado Rapids at left back. He's often making those runs inside and then kind of occupying more of a central position. So we're seeing that more and more, but it's going to take a while. If they're ever even going to get on equal playing fields, it's going to take a while for fullbacks to elevate to that position, right? Because because teams use them so differently mm-hmm. now in so many ways. Jordan, you mm-hmm. talked about the wingbacks in a 3-5-2 or even a 3-4-3. Any three-at-the-back shape will most likely utilize wingbacks in the traditional sense, but there are also a lot of other ways to use fullbacks. Some teams, like the Seattle Sounders or maybe NYCFC, like to push their fullbacks really high. You think of Maturita, you think of Tinnerholm, you think of Leardown for the for the Sounders. These guys are pushing forward, they're getting high and acting as outside midfielders, as attacking players. But then you look at other teams like DC United. I think of them as as a little bit more of a reserved offensive team where they let their attacking players kind of run and occupy the attack. They'll let their midfielders and forwards do that. But then Ben Olsen has his fullbacks, which is which is usually Joseph Mora or Russell Knauss on those wings. They're staying a little bit more defensive. They're occupying those outside channels to avoid having counterattacks against them. So for me, the answer to the sec- to the first part of this question, do we see fullbacks becoming more of an important attacking tr- contributor than midfielders, is it depends on the team. If you're Bob yeah. Bradley, you might want to use Tristan Blackman inside, and he is maybe just as important, important in certain instances as Atuesta or as K or as Blessing. But if you're another team, if you're Ben Olsen, if you're another team maybe in the Eastern or Western Conference, maybe you're not using your fullbacks as much or relying on them as much to do the work of a midfielder. So that's kind of how I see the first part of this question. But but I do agree with Hoffman's premise that we are seeing fullbacks become more and more of an integral part of their team's attacks on a general basis. Yeah. And for me, when I think about positions that I wish I had the ability to play. Fullbacks is one that I'm like, I wish I was faster. I wish I had a a little bit more of that 1v1 ability because when I had my taste at playing outside back, it was so much fun, right? I played in a 4-3-3, had the ability to get forward and, and combine with players both from the midfield but also that winger that played in front of me. It's such a fun position to play and I think that we're seeing that a little bit more, which is making players with an attacking mindset want to play outside back, right? I think that's a real big transition too. It's like uh, sometimes playing defense is not something a lot of players want to do, especially when they're younger. And to give an outside fullback uh, this ability to also be an attacker, I think is bringing a lot more athletic players into that position. To To an observer like me, watching fullbacks is fun. 
because coaches, we talked about, can use them in so many different ways. They can be high up the field. They can be inside. They can be outside. And that allows them to be such an intricate position. They can combine with a winger. They can combine with a center back. They can move inside to play with a midfielder. There's so many things that you can see from fullbacks that also can clue in how their coach wants to play or how the other team is defending them, right? Because if you're seeing the fullbacks not really get on the ball, that could be either because their team doesn't want to play through the fullbacks or that could be because the other team is trying to funnel play inside. And so even just by watching a fullback, you can get a lot of clues into how the game is being played, how each team is trying to approach the match tactically, or if you watch more of an extended series of games, you can see how a coach likes to use their fullback in terms of their overall team identity. So mm-hmm. Jordan, it is a fun position. It sounds both to play and to watch as well. I think there mm-hmm. are lots of details that you can learn just by watching one of the outside fullbacks. And a fun question. I love that from Hoffman FC. Absolutely. Great question. Let's move on to our next one of this episode. Jordan, this one is from Kevin Minkus, who who works for American Soccer Analysis. He's a contributor there. Hi, Kevin. Hope you're doing well. Which player from MLS's early years will be best suited to play tactically in the league today? I love this question because you and I actually started thinking about this when we watched a couple of those games from 1996, the inaugural season of MLS last week. And it really got me thinking about, okay, who would be the player that I would want if you could choose one, you know, and I wrote down a few because I think there's a lot that were really interesting. Um, And maybe we should we can just start there. Like we can say a few that we both think and then just like narrow it down to one. Does that sound cool? That's great. No. And even before we get into that, you mentioned how we talked about this on last week's show. I do want to just go through those guys that we talked about quickly. Then we can maybe elaborate on one or two of them in a little bit more detail later on in our own picks for this week's episode. But last week, Jordan, we talked about Kobe Jones, Jaime Moreno, Eric Winalda, Eddie Pope and Chris Armas. And so those five guys, especially, I think are all great answers to this question. Um, Kobe Jones, I think you'll talk about a little bit more. Jaime Moreno is great. Just a well-rounded number nine who can play so many different ways now and then as well. Eric Wanalda, a threat to get in behind the back line. Eddie Pope can solidify a back line from a center back spot. And Chris Armas, he's not a guy who I put on my list for this week just because we had talked about him a little bit last week, but he's a defensive terrier, right? I actually watched some more of him this week preparing for this question to look at some other players, but he's everywhere so much of the time. He can man mark, he can slide over and cover for another midfielder who's caught out of position. Chris Armas is the real deal, and I think he'd be great in the league now. But we're not talking about Chris Armas. Jordan, you know, which, which players did you have as an answer to this question? Okay, I picked three players and three different players uh, playing different positions. I have my first one, Carlos Valderrama, then Brian McBride, and I'm sticking with Kobe Jones again, too, this week. I like it. Okay, so can you walk us through the reasoning for each of those guys? Give us a little bit of an insight into your mind picking these players. You got to start with Valderrama, right? Uh, One of the most well-known players in the history of soccer. I think I can say that pretty fairly, right? Um, Not only his ability on the field, but his appearance and his amazing hairstyle (laughs) would fit well with our questions that we've talked about the last couple of days. Um, I just think the experience and the, the knowledge of Valderrama playing in an attacking um, central midfield position, being able to create 
Um, the, the one thing that challenges me with him is the defensive responsibilities. Although I, I remember distinctly some very big Valderrama tackles that I uh, can pick out of my brain right away. Um, his willingness to put in a little bit of the dirty work, but he would be so interesting to play on a team who plays with a player, a number 10 like player. Like I see him right now, like, cause I talk a lot about the Columbus crew, right? I see him playing this Celerion position where he's uh, slipping into the space just on the outside parts of a, say a team they're playing against is playing a four, two, three, one. And he's just finding those pockets outside the holding midfielders and just dishing the ball. And not only the ability for him to pick out that final pass, but his ability to score goals and just be a threat in the attacking mix. Yeah, Valderrama is a great guy for that. He is able to get in those pockets of space. And I definitely think that would translate into the league today as opposed to 25 years ago back in 1996. I do have one little pause, and this is kind of an excuse for me on my first player as well, because I went with Mauricio Cienfuegos, the number Ooh. 10 for the Galaxy. Jordan, you so and good. I, you and I talked about last week how the number 10 position has kind of died and has changed mm-hmm. responsibilities. So the big asterisk for these guys, for Valderrama to an extent, and definitely for Cienfuegos, is they have to be able to, to defend a little bit. They need to be able to contribute with their body positioning to help funnel the ball towards the sideline or towards a specific teammate. They need to be able to track back at least some, right? We're not saying that they have to mm-hmm. be a defensive terrier. Like, Nico Ladero is not running everywhere. Diego Valeri is not running everywhere for their teams now. But with Valderrama, with Cienfuegos, I think these guys also have to be able to defend a little bit as well. One of the things I think about is like translating player from then to now is I, especially those two players, right? They thrive off of the more touches they get, the more opportunities they get um, in the attacking third of the field, really. And I think what sets them up, what might set them up to do that defensive work a little bit more is their ability to be more a part of the play, right? If you look at the way teams play now, there's so much more possession a lot of the times than what we saw in 96. And there's more fluidity in the play, right? There's more real bouts of possession. So what that allows is not only that player to maybe get on the ball more, but also to find the pockets of space that they like. I think if you can, if you're an attacking minded player like that and you see the results of the hard work, you're going to want to put in the hard work defensively. So I think there is a, a, give and take there and I think that they could fit in well because of that when we're talking about this this attacking midfielder position the fluidity in possession is a huge part right because when when you lose the ball now in 2020 nine times out of ten you're going to press to win it back as a team within your possession structure so if we're looking at Valderrama or Cienfuegos playing in MLS in 2020 or 2021 We're seeing these guys as part of likely structured counter-pressing schemes, which then you can have the motivation as a player, right? You're like, okay, if I press here in the next three seconds to win the ball right Mm -hmm. back, then we're in great shape because I can get it, I can have the ball back at my feet, and I'm right where I want to be. Then in 96, there were bits and pieces of that. We would see some pressing after you lost the ball. Those types of things were not extinct, but they certainly weren't common, right? Just because the structures were so different. When we look at these players, we're seeing them as parts of fluid, structured, Mm -hmm. offensive and defensive teams. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, All right. I'm going to move past those two and I'm going to go to my second pick, Brian McBride. Ooh, okay. Jordan, I also had Brian McBride. So we can go back and forth. I did. I did. We did not share our notes on this one. We each had McBride. Why do you say Brian McBride as your next player? 
Because it didn't matter. He would score goals. <laughs> it didn't matter. He just is a goal scorer. And what you tell me what team in MLS right now would say no to a goal scorer. Absolutely none of them. Atlanta United would love Brian McBride right now. I was oh thinking my about word. that. Do you think that he would fit in? I think he actually would. I think he would, too. He's not exactly a Joseph Martinez copy because Martinez is a hugely unique guy. But as that goal scorer, you think of Joseph Martinez, you think goals. You think of my Brian McBride and you think the same thing. So that's not a detailed like tactical comparison of these guys. It's not a detailed analytical look at them. But I definitely think McBride, flanked by Barco and by Pitti Martinez with a strong midfield, he would be very, very good for Frank DeBoer. Well, he has the ability, McBride did, to score in a variety of ways too, right? Yeah. He could score mm-hmm. off of crosses. He could score from individual brilliance, from distance, from a tap-in uh, at the back post. He did, he did all the different things that you want out of a central forward, that number nine type. So, yeah. I I really was like it's got to be it's got to be Brian McBride one of my picks and and another reason that I put him on my list is we talked about fullbacks the position changing and evolving the number nine position has changed but it still largely has the same goal literally the same goal you're trying to score goals as a number nine that has not changed from then to now and it won't change 20 years from now the nuances of the position will be adjusted they will be tweaked especially depending on the manager but Brian McBride 1996 or Brian McBride in 2020, he has the same job and a manager's still going to let him go out there, score with his right score, with his left score, with his head. It does not matter. Brian McBride would absolutely fit in MLS 2020. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we agree on that one. My last one, Kobe Jones. Kobe Jones. With the dreads. He needs to bring the dreads back. If yeah, no dreads, no Kobe. Sorry. <laughs> you, you have the dreads, you can play. Otherwise, you're out. Sorry. It's right. that simple. And f- funny enough, I remember like... Valderrama, I remembered as a player, but really McBride and Jones were two players as a young athlete, a young soccer player. Like I remembered very distinctly um, watching them play and Kobe Jones uh, more specifically because I was an outside player. So I liked watching him play. I just think uh, Kobe Jones always had a soccer mind, right? He had this football mind where he not only had this ability as an athlete to run really fast, but run really fast with the ball at his foot. Mm -hmm. He was good at 1v1 attacking. He almost craved it, right? He wanted to be in that position where he could go at an outside back and either get him to the end line and find a cross or cut it inside and get a shot off. I think that... Kobe Jones tactically had the ability to uh, figure out how the other team was playing against him and adapt. So um, I I think he would fit in nicely. And you had mentioned last week when we talked about him, just how many teams crave a winger. And I think about, you know, working for Colorado for so long, I think about Colorado Rapids and how wingers are so important in the way that they play. And I, I, I kind of enjoy that idea of Kobe Jones playing for the Rapids, although for him as an LA Galaxy player, he'd be like, never. (laughs) (laughs) I I was listening to Alexi Lalas on the Total Soccer Show interviewed by Taylor Rockwell. Go back and listen to that interview if you haven't. It's a great look at Alexi's mind going through some of the biggest games and most interesting games of his career. But Alexi was talking about Kobe Jones and just the idea of playing with Kobe Jones. And one thing that stood out to me from his conversation with Taylor was... I think Alexi said something about wanting to just give Kobe the ball in a wide area and let him do his thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need to go give him a lot of support. You can. Like, you can go overload the opposing fullback with Kobe Jones. That's great. 
Or you can just allow Kobe to be in a little bit of space, isolate and beat a guy, right? And I, I think about I wouldn't want to be that guy. No, no one would want to be that guy. And that's the point, right? In modern soccer, you want players who can win 1v1 matchups. Not just if you're playing a crazy man-marking system like the Earthquakes, but every every scheme, every system needs guys who can win battles. I, I, I look back at the Seattle Sounders from last season. Brian Schmetzer had so many overloads on the wings. Mm-hmm. They would suck the ball to one side. They'd move the opposing defense over to that side to deal with the numbers. And then they cross the ball to the opposite wing. And then they'd isolate on that weak side wing now with, with their attacking winger versus a fullback in space. I think of Kobe Jones as a perfect player for that sort of setup. Ooh. So that alone, combined with everything that you said about him, Jordan, his mind, his ability out wide, these things make Kobe Jones a great fit for MLS 2020. Mm-hmm. Who's your third player? So my third and final player is Ben Aroha. Not a guy that I think a lot of modern MLS fans know, but when we went back to watch 1996 games for the San Jose Clash, he definitely caught my attention. So dating back to 1996, he started the year with the Clash, played in the inaugural game. He had the game-winning assist to Eric Winalda on the left side for the Clash. Then he was traded from San Jose to DC United midway through the 1997 season. Those were his only two years in Major League Soccer. So not a, not a huge mainstay in the league. But from what I saw of him, Jordan, I think he could be a really effective guy in Major League Soccer today. Why do you, why do you say that? So he played mostly as a left midfielder in the games that I watched. But after doing some research and just from seeing him as an individual, I think he'd be great as a left back. He doesn't have a ton of well-rounded versatility. Like he's not able to play a lot with his right foot. He's pretty one-footed. So if you wanted to play him as an outside player, which just seems perfect for him, maybe you rely on him less as a winger because now we see wingers needing to do more with the ball. Sometimes they need to cut inside. Sometimes they need to hug the end line. But then you put him as a fullback in a pretty basic but still effective tactic of having the fullback overlap on the outside. Then he can play good crosses in with his left foot. Smart crosses, not wasteful crosses. But if you have a Roja as at left back, he's a strong guy, not super tall, but very strong, very fast. I think he'd be a perfect athletic outside back in Major League Soccer. You've done a really good job so far, Joe, of giving us like teams that these players would fit into. Whose team would he fit into? So for me, he almost seems like a like, not a like for like replacement for Brad Smith and the Sounders, but just because of how much Brian Schmetzer loves his fullbacks and his outside combinations. I think putting Ben Aroha at left back, sorry, new who, sorry, Sam Stasekul. I think <laughs> as a left back, he could be a very, very good player, especially to combine with Jordan Morris, right? Because we have Aroha on the left. You have Jordan Morris on the left. Morris can occupy that inside channel, tuck inside, play off of Rui Diaz, break the back line. Morris can do all of those things. Then you couple him with a guy like Aroha, who's a little bit more technical, I think, than new who is a little bit more sane as well. And so you have more vision for the game and you have the strong, fast, athletic fullback who can whip in some really nice crosses to Rui Diaz. It seems perfect to me. I love it. Okay. You've picked three players. Who's your number one? I think we've given all of our info. We can just pick our number one and um, let it be that. So I think Aroha is the top guy from my group, a little bit under the radar. But Jordan, I, I don't know if you disagree. I'm really thinking Kobe Jones is the way to go here. He's my one. Yeah, Kobe I think he, in one. the championship game between Aroha and Kobe Jones, one-on-one, I'd love to see these guys play one-on-one, both now and 24, Ooh, 25 yeah. years ago. But I think as a podcast, we need to give it to Kobe Jones for his ability to impact Major League Soccer today. All right, there you go, Kobe. Congratulations. I'm sure we'll have a plaque <laughs> to you in the mail by, uh, I don't know, give us some time, maybe a couple yeah. weeks. <laughs> Jordan, on to our next question. This one is from Nance. She says, watching the change in tactics from 25 years ago is pretty jarring. 
What are some wild predictions for the next evolution of tactics in the league or globally? I've actually got some initial thoughts. If you're okay to let me take the lead. Yeah, you take the lead because I literally thought wild predictions. Well, <laughs> we could be going on for ages. No, we could. And, and we'll definitely not do that because we have more questions to get to. But I like how this flows, especially from the fullback question that Hoffman FC asked. Just looking mm-hmm. at the evolution of the game from a while back to now to the future. One thing that I love to think about when talking about wild predictions for tactics, and I've wrote about this before, is seeing teams continue to emphasize on set pieces just as much as they do the run of play, right? So we're seeing the statistics that show how many goals in American soccer are from set pieces. Like, it's not an insignificant amount. I think for USL, it's at least 30% of all goals are from set pieces. So not the same amount as the run of play necessarily, but that's a lot. That's a high number of goals for an area that's really not talked about. It's not talked about by the media very much. It's not analyzed. I don't do a very good job of looking at it. But set pieces are huge, right? And so I think we're going to see teams continue to get more creative, continue to get smarter with how they attack, how they defend off set pieces. Just thinking about England at the World Cup, right, in 2018, their goals, so many of them came off of creative set pieces that that you could see the influence from basketball, from American football. I truly believe we're going to see more and more creativity on set pieces over the next 25 years or however long. That's really interesting that you say that there's not a lot of emphasis. Like for me personally, I think it was... I was really lucky to go to Santa Clara University and play soccer there. And Jerry Smith is one of the most brilliant soccer minds, I think, in American soccer. He's been coaching at Santa Clara since um, I won't name the date for Jerry's sake. Uh, But Jerry, we used to write goals for our teams and our our goals each uh, phase of the season always had to do with set pieces. Uh, Mm. There would always be a goal with set pieces because we knew how big of a deal that was as a team to not give them up and to take advantage. And so that for me has always been super ingrained in the way that I thought. Um, I was even calling a game last, the last game I called crew versus Sounders. And I was talking about how the Sounders were playing their set piece balls from the corner to the same exact spot every time. And it never worked. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, they might need to switch the thinking there because it's just not working. Like you can't go to the near zone every time and have the zonal person at the near zone take care of it and think you're being effective. So, um, yeah, maybe it isn't thought about by everybody, but for me, it is something that I, I think so much about. So maybe that transition to a wild prediction, you know, like we're going to see a lot more set piece goals, or maybe the set piece goals are going to go down because of the emphasis on, you know, the defensive side of it. That's a totally fair thing. We look at so many major league soccer teams, Jordan, I feel like even in our, our first two weeks of analysis before the season kind of got postponed, no, not kind of, it did get postponed <laughs> for the foreseeable future. We talked a lot about goals being given up by a lack of marking or lack of attention to detail on set pieces. So even a simple thing like that, like you're talking about your experience in college where those were emphasized, maybe we need to see more MLS teams Mm -hmm. get on board with that and put a little bit more attention to the set piece defensive portion as well as the attacking creativity. So that's that's one emphasis point for me that I think we'll definitely see change over the future. Another one is is seeing goalkeepers continue to make their way further and further out of their box. We've seen sweeper keeper, sweeper keeper. Maybe we'll see that 2.0, right? We'll see (laughs) goalkeepers come out of their box, play as an extra defender and as an extra midfielder. It's hugely risky. It definitely has a lot of consequences, maybe even making teams a little bit more risk averse because if your goalkeeper's out of the box, how likely are you to play that risky ball forward? Yeah, maybe we won't see that. But, you know, 
Nance, you asked for wild predictions, so maybe we're going to see goalkeepers move out of their box. Kenneth Vermeer for LAFC, Sean Johnson for NYCFC. Maybe these guys are going to be pushing forward. Who knows? Yeah, my wild prediction is going to be the fluidity of positioning and not the responsibilities of the positions, but... When a team has the ball and attack for players to have the ability to move and find the open space and create out of um, that open space, but then to then respond in a defensive structure that isn't like, I got to get back to my spot. Hmm. It's like, I'm just going to take the first spot that's available. So, um, you know, I might be an outside back, but I'm now a winger and the center midfielder is now an outside back and the center forward is now an attacking midfielder. Uh, So maybe some more fluidity in the defensive positioning. You're not always a center forward. You're not always a winger. Um, But that all being brought on from the fluidity in attack and just feeling the game and reading where the space is or creating space to then attack um, with that movement off the ball. It's fascinating that you mentioned that because it's not one of the predictions that I wrote down. Like it's not one of the two that I had to talk about, but I've been thinking more and more about that recently. Jordan, why is it so hard? Why don't we see more of that? Like, why don't we see a defender who's moved up the field on a set piece just stay there and defend as a number nine? Why don't we see the number nine who's tracked back just take up a spot in midfield and the players around him adjust? Like, you've had experience in situations like that on the field. Why do we see so much, you know, structured structure instead of fluid structure with how teams defend? Because it's really hard to know all the positions <laughs> on the field and all the responsibilities. It's it's hard enough, Joe, for you to get one position down. You know, yeah. think about some players playing at the highest of highest levels have only played that one position their whole entire life. You know, I think for me, one of the things that allows me to see the game in a different way is I I played every position from youth Uh, really like the later parts of my youth into being a professional, I played center back, outside back, center midfielder, holding midfielder, uh, attacking midfielder, center forward, winger. Like I played them all. So I have, I, in every meeting, I was so attentive to every detail my coach said because I didn't know where I was playing next. I had no idea. So I was like, if the more I know, the more ability I have to be on the field. You know, that was always my, always my thought. If I know how to play that position, then If they need someone, I can play. But for a lot of players, they have very distinct skills that are perfect for a certain position. So it makes it really hard to learn how to play a number nine, but then also feel like, okay, I could cover for our outside back if need be. Those are completely different positions with completely different responsibilities. So um, I think that's why it's hard. But you do see a lot more players now with the ability to interchange even when they're attacking, right, uh, for outside backs to come in centrally, for uh, center midfielders to take up space out wide and maybe like a box formation and how they're really giving the width sometimes going in attack. So there are more responsibilities asked of these players. So I think that as they continue to figure out how to then break down defensive that defenses that have maybe seen the same kind of structure for a little bit, there'll be more fluidity in how they then defend. Um, But I don't know. That's pretty wild. You said a lot of really smart things there, but 
pretty much all I heard was we need a full team of Jordan Angeles out there. That's did I say that? Because I <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> I said it for you so you didn't no! have to. But no, the root of what you said is right. I think it's got to be difficult to have that perception and knowledge of each individual spot. And so maybe looking at youth development, we see players rotate around more. We see them have experience playing in different positions, and then maybe after enough years of that, enough cycles of that, we really could see more fluid defensive and attacking systems that allow players to shift spots. Mm -hmm. Jordan, on to our next question. Why don't you hit me with this one? Yeah, okay. I really enjoy this. I actually tweeted about this game earlier when I was watching it because it was so fun to watch. But um, we we ended up going back and finding an RSL game to answer this question from Tevin Tippett. And he asked, what make, made the 4-4-2 diamond that RSL ran from 09 to 14 so effective? What was it that they did to catch everyone off guard when playing against both North and Central American opponents? Okay, so this is a big question, right? Yeah. Another broad one, which is what we asked for. So this Over is perfect. Over five years. Right. And I'd be lying if I said I watched a game from each year or if I watched a lot of these matches, but we did go back and watch film. I also reached out to, to Sam Sageko, who was a part of the RSL organization during this run with Jason Christ as a head Look coach to get a little bit more foundation to answer this question as best we can. First, before we get into the tactical part of what made their diamonds so effective, I think we should talk about the accolades. This was a darn good RSL team mm -hmm. for a lot of years. They won the 2009 MLS Cup, which is the game that you and I watched to prep mm -hmm. for this question. They were MLS Cup runners-up in 2013. They made a couple of CCL appearances, including a trip to the final in 2011, where they narrowly lost to Monterey. So, Jordan, from watching some film, from looking at this midfield diamond from Jason Kreiss and Real Salt Lake, what is it about that diamond that you think made the team so good? There's, I think it's a combination because it's never just one thing, right? It's always how all the parts work together. Um, I'm going to pick th three main things that I saw. One, when you think about a diamond and how it works, I think first defensively, it looked a lot like a 4-4-2 um, that we see a lot of MLS teams play right now. But attacking is where I saw a little bit of a change. And, you know, this wasn't every single time, but one of the things I saw from RSL in that diamond shape was they would uh, drop two or even three of their midfielders to try to come back and get the ball. And, and Beckerman was usually one of those players. The other two switched off and they ended up in that game that we watched having a couple injuries that they had to mix up the midfield a little bit. But when they dropped those multiple players in to come get the ball off the back line, and it's really like uh, 10 yards off the back line, not that far. So all three of them would come. What I saw, and this happened multiple times, one of those players would get the ball, say Beckerman got it centrally. Those two other midfielders who have then were kind of like the outside points of the diamond who then dropped back. They Well, they pulled the central midfielders for the opposing team out of position. So as they pull those central midfielders out of position to come chase them and try to deny them for getting the ball, what happened next when Beckerman got the ball is then there's huge spaces for them to go and attack mm -hmm. it, right? So then they Beckerman would play, would play that next ball into in behind the defender, that midfield defender um, on either the right or the left, whichever way he went, ended up going. And it allowed RSL to get out and beat a line of pressure pretty easily. So I really liked that about them. Uh, the second thing I want to go to really quick is just Beckerman. Yeah. He's huge. He's, yeah. he's huge. And at this time of the of his career, he did it all. He, he was the defensive presence we've known him to be. He 
could move. He would be on the left wing with his heels on the touchline sometimes. Uh, sometimes he would getting, be the third center back in a buildup. There were so many ways that he was able to help their team in the center of the pitch. It was refreshing to go back and look at a prime Kyle Beckerman because we see him still contributing to RSL now, but he's not the same player. And he would tell you that he's he's lost a step in midfield. He doesn't have the same quality around him now as he did then. And so watching him as the base of a fully functioning midfield was so incredible because Hmm. you touched on it perfectly, Jordan. His ability to rotate into different channels in midfield to distribute and to cue different movements was essential to this RSL team. He really was the catalyst for almost everything that this midfield especially, but the whole team did. He was in charge. When he had the ball, Mm -hmm. they kind of rotated in around him, those other three midfield players. When he rotated wide, that cued another one of the outside points of the diamond to drop inside, whether that's Will Johnson, Ned Gravoboy, Andy Williams, or Luis Gill. All these players can come drop in, fill that space, and allow Beckerman to go up and create. So yes, the other, the Shuttlers and the the attacking midfielder, Yavi Morales, they're all important guys, but Beckerman was so fun to watch and just such a clear key to this team. And you just mentioned it. They're they're playing a four four two diamond, but it rarely looked like a diamond, right? Because yeah. the way that they moved off each other and filled gaps, and uh, saw one player move, and so knew that the space was somewhere else, and left that space unoccupied for then a ball to break a line, and then they popped into the space behind to to get the ball set set to them. There were so many things that worked really well about this RSL, you know, center diamond four. The last thing is just. That meant there's a mentality about them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just an X factor. You can't really put a finger on on why it was like that. You know, the, the culture that was around that team, I think there was something different about them. And uh, they had good leadership on the field. And I think we're, we're demanded. There was demanded a lot of them, but they also had this really nice, nice mixture of a, a lot of different talented players, strength and toughness with some grace and ability on the ball and um, softness on the ball with some good attacking players. I, I think it was just a really unique squad. It was, both in terms of the tactic, like I'm guessing that wasn't really used a whole lot in Major League Soccer, certainly at that time, but also leading up to that span. We saw the diamond popularized a little bit more with Jose Mourinho over in Europe, and then we definitely saw it with Christ and this RSL team. But the mentality is huge. Sam, I mentioned I reached out to Sam uh, with their podcast with Paul Tenorio, Allocation Disorder, which is another Total Soccer Show podcast. I'm pretty sure if you're listening to us, you know about them. But mm-hmm. I think off chance you don't, go check them out. But I reached out to Sam, who was a part of that RSL organization at the time, for his thoughts. And that mentality that you talked about, Jordan, was the very first thing that he mentioned. <laughs> right? And that's something that I I don't think I have as great of an appreciation for so often, just because I've never been in a situation like that. I've never been in a cohesive environment that, that brings out that sort of strong mentality in every single single person. But after hearing Sam say it, after hearing you talk about it and having watched some of this film, you can see it, right? It's so Mm. clear. It's so obvious to see these guys working together, hunting the ball, winning it, then quickly playing out of space. And that's the other thing that Sam talked about. He mentioned, without even me prompting him, kind of how RSL would move their diamonds or move their four midfielders over to one side, condensing the space, condensing the opposing team's ability to move out and to trap them against one small area of the field. Then they would win it. And this is what Sam said. They would always be able to combine, and those four guys in the diamond could work their way out of almost any situation. 
situation. They could win the ball. They were technical enough to get out of tight spaces after they won it. And that made them so difficult to stop Mm -hmm. once they won it or when they did trap the opposing team. You could not get RSL. You could not counterpress them. You could not stop them from getting in those prime situations to then win the ball, get out of tight spaces, and play the ball up the field to their two forwards. It was a very, very good, very strong, very coordinated tactical diamond from Jason Christ. One of the things I tweeted this morning when I was watching the game is as a broadcaster and someone who loves the game so much, uh, I, I know JP Delacamera pretty well, but him and Rob Stone are the two of the announcers in this game. And JP has been announcing for, for decades, but just the longevity of these two's careers and their voices over moments in American soccer, it's just so cool to see that and um, really inspiring as well. Absolutely. Those guys are absolute legends of the commentary booth. Jordan, I'm excited to see you follow in their footsteps. Oh, Joe. <laughs> you know it. Okay. You know it. All right. Um, let's go next. We only got a couple questions left, so we'll get through these ones. Uh, next one coming from the great Matt Pollard here in Denver, Colorado. He is asking, many MLS teams have transitioned or had a new fascination with the 4-3-3 formation recently. Regardless of style of play, what's the key weakness of the 4-3-3 shape? Jordan, before I answer this question, in fact, I'm going to let you do the heavy lifting. I wanted to just talk about the fluidity of formations and maybe just cover some of the, the premise of this overall question. So when you think about formations, it's difficult to look at them as a static thing, right? So much of the time they're fluid and they're moving. So when we talk about a four through three shape, we're making a lot of generalizations about how teams want to set up in, in these few moments, right? We might see a four through three shape at kickoff, at the second half kickoff or after goals, but almost every single second of the time between that is spent in some variation of a four through three with players moving and occupying different spots into different spaces. So I'm not sure that we can look at a four through three as a static thing without kind of generalizing in, in a way that maybe we don't want to do. When we look at a four through three, we might be better off looking at it as a single game, as a very small instance. Then we can compare the 4-3-3, the strengths, the weaknesses of that shape up against how the other team is set up. Because if we're talking about a 4-3-3, you don't naturally have any advantages anywhere just by putting the shape on the field without knowing the opposing team. Because if you're playing against a 4-3-3, you're on the same spot. If you're playing against a 4-2-3-1, you have the same numbers in midfield matched up perfectly against a 4-3-3. So it really is specific. And so, Matt, I would encourage you and the rest of our listeners that when you're thinking about formations, watch a game and apply what you're thinking about to the match and then see how a 4-3-3 compares to a 4-4-2, just a flat 4-4-2. Then talk about maybe looking at it against RSL's diamond. With that diamond midfield, how does the 4-3-3 have to change? to cover those advantages that the diamond naturally does have against a four through three. So that's my really long and rambly way of saying watch (laughs) games and think about these questions in the context of that. Jordan, now you can take it away. Well, I think that's the best part about soccer in my in my opinion is if you look at other sports, they're played in a very condensed amount of space. A lot of them are, right? Um, even football. Yeah, the field is big, but all the action is happening in a very small amount of area. For soccer, it's a huge, it's a huge field. There's so much space. And the point of the game is to win the space battle. Really, like you're supposed to score goals, but in order to score goals, you're winning different spaces on the field and you're creating different spaces on the field. And by moving players, you're actually pulling players out of the space you actually want to expose. And so I love that about soccer and I love that formations are just a a setup and not necessarily what we see throughout the whole entire 90 minutes. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's what I was trying to get at. Jordan, also, when you said space battle, 
I wonder if that was a knockoff name for Star Wars. Um, I think Ooh. that's something that George Lucas should have considered at the time. So I got distracted yeah. again just because I was thinking about that. <laughs> space. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? I was thinking about space battles. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but now, Jordan, this is the perfect time for you to actually get at what Matt once answered. What is kind of the weakness or some of the main weaknesses of a 433 shape, especially drawing from your experience? Oh, gosh, there's so many there's strength and weaknesses, and it really depends on the player personnel that you have. If you don't have outside backs who are have the fitness and the ability that we've talked about earlier in this podcast to get forward and cover defensively, if they don't have that fitness, you could be really exposed in a 4-3-3 because if you ask too much from your outside backs to get forward, you're leaving huge gaps to then be exposed on a counterattack by an opposing team. You know, um, if an opposing team has a quick switch of the point of attack, they could be in acres of space if you push your fullbacks high and they don't have the ability to recover. And we see that, right? We see transition moments being a big thing against a lot of teams, but teams in a 4-3-3 uh, who utilize outside backs getting forward, that can Absolutely. be a key, a key space. One of the other things that we see a lot is, you mentioned it earlier about how Seattle likes to play is they bring a lot of numbers into one side of the field. And defensively, that's a good tactic to have, right? So if an offensive team is bringing numbers and overloading one side of the field, as a defensive team, you're thinking, yes, we've got them, right? We've got them locked in. Their numbers are here. The ball is here. Let's try to lock off every option that they have getting out. Well, if they make one one small pass centrally or have the ability from one sideline to to find a switch of a point of attack and have an open player in a 1v1 situation or working into a 1v1 situation, say they're in a little bit more space on the opposing side, that big switch of point of attack is super isolating for a team. And in a 4-3-3, it can be an outside back versus a winger or maybe an opposing team's outside back who has the ability to go 1v1 and uh, get out get at an opposing defender. So you're putting a lot of pressure on um, one defender. You can be in a 4-3-3 with that switch of point of attack. I think it's so important then to look at this again as a case-by-case basis, because if you have a defensively inclined winger on that weak side, then you're in a much better spot than if you don't have that. If you're, if your winger wants to stay high up the field and then get forward in the, in the attack once the team wins the ball back. If you have a winger who can track back, that might mitigate some of those damages that are happening on that weak side of the defense. Because if your three central midfielders are tucked into the strong side, then the other team plays the ball to the weak side. You need that weak side winger to come back and help out in some capacity, unless you just have otherworldly one-on-one defenders. So yeah, I love that point. And it definitely obviously depends on the team, but that's a great overall weakness of the shape that has to be addressed by any coach. Yeah. And with a, a 4-3-3, the other, the other weakness that I see, um, that I think is one of the advantages if you're a team, who's attacking a 4-3-3 is midfield, like deeper midfield runs are really, are really on a lot of the time. So say you're attacking down the left side and you're the opposite side center midfielder for a team against a 4-3-3. Maybe the defensive team in the 4-3-3 are squished over in defending on their right side, right? Trying to contain on their right side, the left side attacking for your team. Well, there could potentially be a lot of space, uh, 
between the center back and the outside back to try to make this deep bombing run as a central midfielder. Mm -hmm. And that run is really difficult to mark if you're a central midfielder in that 4-3-3 team because your focus and attention is trying to lock the team into that right side. But you're checking your shoulder and thinking, oh, if this guy runs through, I got to check. I got to mark this player because the center backs are most likely occupied. This holding midfielder is trying to deny those passing lanes into the attacking players who are running along the back line. So that later run, that late bombing run in can be a real doozy for teams to try to defend. You always hear that term late arriving run and you hear that almost like that's a buzzword for how teams, especially with Weston McKinney. That's a guy that I'm guessing a lot of our listeners will know and have seen. Weston McKinney loves to make those late arriving runs, but we never really hear about why those are effective and why you want those from your central midfielders, especially. And that's exactly the reason, right? Because as a defensive team, as a defender, you get caught up with where the ball is and trying Mm -hmm. to deal with your current situation. It's hard to think ahead to the next play after that. Like you can't predict whether a late arriving run is going to come or not. And so having to be constantly ready, constantly on guard for that sort of movement is super difficult. And I think 4-3-3 defensive teams can struggle to deal with those movements with those movements from midfield, exactly like you detailed. Yeah, and I just want to say, Matt, thank you for listening. He's one of the great people that I met here in Colorado. He covers the Rapids on Last Word on Soccer and um, has a podcast with Soccer Rabbi. I don't know if you know Mark. (laughs) Mark. uh, Holding the High Line podcast. Those two uh, really great people and uh, just so thankful for them and their support of me over the years. So thank you for asking the question, Matt. Absolutely. On to our last and final question, Jordan. This one is from Ryan McNiff. He says, listening to the last pod, I noticed how many of the current MLS coaches were former players in Major League Soccer. This leads me to wonder what current or former MLS players do you think will be coaches? Jordan, let's just go back and forth. Like, let you do one, I'll do one. I think we've got a few between the two of us. Jordan, who is your first current or former Major League Soccer player that you think would make a good coach? I think we should also start off by saying we have no idea if these people want to coach or not. <laughs> we have zero idea. Um, but the first person I thought of was Sasha Question. Okay, I like that. Even just thinking about it in my head now, why don't you give some of your rationale? I have always just really gr- liked watching Question play. I remember being a, a rookie with the Boston Breakers, and he came to play in Boston uh, against the Revs for Chivas. He was playing for Chivas at that time. <laughs> And I was just watching him on the field. I was my my first year in the league. I was playing center midfield and it was not that I hadn't played that spot before, but I was playing it at a higher level. And so I was just really interested in like soaking up anything anybody else did. And he was always pointing and pointing and pointing. And even if like where he wanted another player to even move, like move here. And then he would say, play the ball here with a point. And he was just like really directing traffic the whole entire game on and off the ball. Um, He played for Anderlecht for five seasons, uh, multiple different coaches here in MLS. He played New York Red Bulls, uh, Orlando City, played for he's now playing for LA Galaxy. Uh, I mentioned playing for Chivas. So he he's been coached by a lot of different coaches, right, and different styles of coaches. And he's played internationally. He's played for um for the United States at an international level, but also played um, over in Europe. So I just think 
his experiences on the field, but also he's just been a player for me that sees the game slightly differently. And I would like to see him translate that into uh, a team playing slightly differently. (laughs) I love that. I love the idea of attacking midfielder of an attacking midfielder kind of taking on a team, right? And trying to encourage them to see the game, how he does able to, to expose space, to win the space battles, not star Wars, but to win the space battles across the field, to create that (laughs) space. I think that's a really exciting thing. And I would love to see Sasha Klustian take over an MLS team at some point in the future. Okay. So you're next. All right. So my first player is Reggie Cannon. I was talking with, I was talking with Armand Kafai, who was a former FC Dallas beat writer. He's now a data analyst for FC Dallas. I was asking him, Hey, Armand, which players on FC Dallas, do you think would make good coaches? Because I like to cheat. I like to have other people answer questions for me. No, that's not why. But I wanted Armand's opinion on this because he's a smart guy. And he said, Joe, it's it's Reggie Cannon, right? And I thought immediately, of course, right? We've heard the story. Both of his parents are from Ivy League schools. He's a really, really smart guy. His grandpa won a Nobel Prize for climate change research. I mean, this guy is coming from not only an academic and smart background, but you can see it in how he plays the game. You can see it in the type of coaches that he's had. Reggie Cannon, for being a guy who's only 21, so kind of the opposite age spectrum of Sasha Kleschen, who's a little bit of an older player. Cannon is just getting his career started, but he's always watching opposing players to try to take things from their game, much like you're talking about for yourself, Jordan. He's looking at other players. He's been brought up by Luchi Gonzalez in that tactical, really disciplined, very strong identity to FC Dallas team. He's already on the leadership board for the United States men's national team under Greg Berhalter. I mean, between Berhalter and Gonzalez alone, those are two of the coaches that I would most trust to shepherd young players. I think Cannon is a perfect player for this, even though he's way on the younger end. No, I love that. And I actually was thinking there has to be someone from FC Dallas when Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this question. And I'm glad you said Cannon. So since he has that background, is he like a coach style, like going to wear glasses and a sweater (laughs) vest? Is that what he has to wear? I think he should just model Lucci's fashion because he's always got the look on the sideline looking quite good. Top shape. The sweaters. Add in some glasses. I think that'd be perfect for Reggie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that. <laughs> Jordan, who's your next guy? Cannon. I'm going to go with two players. I'm going to say both of them. So maybe we'll have like a, a, a co-head coaches here. Uh, but I couldn't choose between the two. Both center backs, both very good American players, right? Probably when you think of American center backs, these are two that you think of just for their longevity, for their, I guess, um, sometimes ruthlessness, their leadership, uh, and and their ability to just get the job done. I've got Michael Parkhurst and Chad Marshall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you love it. You love to see it. I love to see it. And we all know that already. So I'm not going to talk about these center backs. I'm going to let you take that. I just think that both of them, uh, and they could have this fun, like one, two punch. Could Chad, cause we know we've heard stories of Chad Marshall, right? And his, <laughs> he, he's a funny guy. And I think that they could um, balance each other off very well. I, not that, Michael Parkhurst isn't funny, but I think they would know when to be serious. They would know when to Mm -hmm. uh, interject a little bit of humor into the situation. But the experience these two players have as a center back, and I think playing center back allows you to see the game in a different perspective. You're almost like coaching the game the whole time because everything is supposed to be happening in front of you, right? Whereas opposed to a midfielder, it's happening 360 around you. As a center back, it's really happening in front of you and you can see things start to form. And when the shape gets out of sorts, you can see that happening and try to react in the moment um, through communication or through positioning, whatever it may be. So I think that center backs are a really good 
place to start when you're thinking about uh, becoming a coach that a lot of coaches come from from that position. Yeah, one guy that stands out to me is Robin Frazier. We looked at the origins of the league. Robin Frazier played as a center back for a number of different MLS teams, but the Galaxy back in 96. Robin Frazier has now, you know, traveled through Major League Soccer as a head coach for Chivas, assistant coaches um, in a number of other clubs, and now taking charge of the Colorado Rapids. Center backs, not every center back, but a lot of center backs have that ability to see the game differently, to look at the field and to see what needs to be changed and what needs to happen. And Chad Marshall and Michael Parker are absolutely two of those guys who I think we both agree could be very, very good MLS coaches if that's what they decide to do. Yeah. Okay. You got one more. Who you got for us? Our final current or former MLS player who I think could make a good coach is Bobby Warshaw. Everybody knows Bobby. We both know and love Bobby Warshaw. He's a a former writer for MLS. He's played in the league before. He's had lots of experience. I love Bobby. I love it the way he sees the game. He's always thinking of unique tactical ideas. He's got a whole series of those on his website right now, bobbywarshaw.com. Go read those. If you're listening to the show, read those, please. They're great. I've read them through. Jordan, I know we've been talking about them. Bobby sees the game in a really unique way. He's already had youth coaching experience in New York. He's he's honestly the godfather of the show, Jordan, because he he put he, <laughs> he connected is. us together way back when. He is he is the reason basically along with Taylor and Daryl that this show exists. And so this is a great time to to plug Bobby. We wish him the best with whatever his new career venture is, but his mind for the game, his tactical, his love for the game, all of these things make him the perfect candidate to be an MLS coach someday. And he has those smarts that you were talking about too, right? Oh he, yeah. He went to Stanford um <laughs> who I guess I can still like him, even though I went to Santa Clara and <laughs> it's hard to like people I went to Stanford. No, uh, last year I had the opportunity to call some U.S. Open Cup games with him and never have I been more just like in awe of an analyst. Mm-hmm. I'm, I was just like, wait, I, I have to listen to that back, not only yep. as a part of my routine as a broadcaster, but for, being a play-by-play in that instance and Bobby being my analyst, I was just like, how are you picking that out? Mind you, this is U.S. Open Cup where these teams, we don't know anything about them. And he he didn't it didn't matter. He was like, I can see the game and I can pick out things that are happening in the game. And um, yeah, it made me really sad because on my calendar tomorrow and the next day are all my U.S. Open Cup games that I'm now oh, no. not calling. And I was supposed to call some of them with Bobby. So, um, yeah, he's a, a great mind. And I think a really good shout if if he'd be willing to take on uh, that that role as an MLS coach. I think we've gone full circle looking at Bobby Warshaw today, dating all the way back to when he first brought us together to do this show. So thank you, Bobby, for that. And we we hope to see you coaching on an MLS sideline someday. Yeah, and helping us out here on this podcast at some point. Absolutely. Jordan, we've gone through a lot of questions today. We talked hair, we talked fullbacks, we talked 433s, we talked RSL, we talked about a lot of different stuff. Thank you so much for being patient and going through all of these great, great listener questions with me. I can't believe that was an hour. I felt like that flew by. Yeah, it feels like five, ten minutes. That was great. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. And Jordan, I know you and I will be back again soon with another episode. 